Hollywood Community Church exists to shine as light in our homes, in our community, and in our world. To contact us or for more information, see our website at wildwoodchurch.org. Well, if you have have been with us over the last number of weeks, you know that we are in the midst of a 12-week series based out of the book of Ephesians that we have called Pact. And what we've seen in this series is that the God of the universe has packed within every Christian every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. And that God has, has packed these blessings within us, not just so that we would be blessed, though certainly his intent is to bless us, but he packed them inside of us so that we would unpack them and utilize them to use these blessings as we live out our Christian life on this planet as well as on into eternity. And so for the first several weeks of the series, we walked through the first three chapters and and looked at the blessings that God has packed inside Christians. And then over the last couple of weeks, we've um, transitioned to look at what our response is as we unpack some of these truths within our lives. And so we've seen that over a number of weeks, and we're going to have another installment in that series today as we look at week nine, which is going to focus on Ephesians chapter five, verses one through 21. But before we we open up and look at those verses together today, um, I want to just have us reflect on something together. And then that something is this. I want you to, to reflect just for a moment and think about all the things that you have learned in your life. I mean, you look like a pretty educated group. Uh, you, you've no doubt learned a number of things. Think about everything that you have learned in your life. And then as you, as you kind of begin to, to, to summarize that in, in your brain, I want to ask you this question. How many of those things that you have learned in life have you been taught and how many have you caught? Of the things that you've learned, how many have you been taught? Now, the, the kinds of things that we need to be taught Many times those things are the kinds of things we learned in school, right? Uh, I know that two plus two equals four because at some point somebody taught me that. <laughs> I needed to be taught that in order to know it. How do I know how to correctly spell the word gnat? That pesky little silent G in front. I, I know how to spell the word gnat because at some point somebody explained to me that the word nat is spelled G-N-A-T. There are things in life that you have been taught, but there are also things in life that you have caught off of the lives of others. Excuse me. The things that you have caught in life from others, many times those are the more relational kinds of things. Uh, You know, when when you wanna know what it looks like to be loving, uh, many times we know what it, looks like to be loving because we have caught that from others. When I want to know what it looks like to be a loving husband or a loving father, I can look to examples from my own home, from my dad. I caught that from him. It's something I may have caught from from others in this room as I've watched you relate to your spouse or to your children. There are things that we have caught from others. Your, Your kids learn this. What does it mean to be a good sport? Well, it's not just about being taught a set of facts. You, you catch those things by watching others relate to how they win and how they lose. Uh, those, those, those kinds of examples. There, there are things in life that we are taught and there are things in life that we catch. Um, and that makes up the, 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 the volume of what we know. 
Now, when it comes to things in the spiritual realm, there are also things that are taught to us, and there are things that God wants us to catch. And in the book of Ephesians, we have three chapters of uh, very didactic teaching, where Paul is teaching us things about the blessings that we have in Christ. But when we get to the second half of the book of Ephesians, uh, Paul doesn't just teach us more things, he invites us to, to catch a few things by looking at the character of God. In other words, as we relate to God, there are some things and ways of behaving that you and I should just catch. Uh, beyond just giving us a written word, he sent a living word, Jesus, into the world so that we would know by catching from him and his actions and his activity what it looks like to live a life that is pleasing to God. When we get to Ephesians chapter 5, verses 1 through 21, we're invited to catch a few things from God and to imitate them or mimic them in our lives. And so we're going to look today at Ephesians chapter 5, verses 1 through 21, as we're going to see three different things about what it looks like for us to live out our Christian lives imitating or following God. Let me read these verses to us before we break them down. Chapter 5, beginning in verse 1, it says, Therefore, be imitators of God as beloved children, and walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us, a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. But sexual immorality and all impurity or covetousness must not even be named among you as is proper among saints. Let there be no filthiness, nor foolish talk, nor crude joking, which are out of place, but instead let there be thanksgiving. For you may be sure of this, that everyone who is sexually immoral or impure or who is covetous, that is, an idolater, has no inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God. Let no one deceive you with empty words, for because of these things, the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience." Therefore, do not become partners with them, for at one time you were darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. Walk as children of light, for the fruit of light is found in all that is good and right and true, and try to discern what is pleasing to the Lord. Take no part in the unfruitful works of darkness, but instead expose them, for it is shameful even to speak of the things that they do in secret. But when anything is exposed by the light, it becomes visible. For anything that becomes visible is light. Therefore, it says, awake, O sleeper, and rise from the dead, and Christ will shine on you. Look carefully, then, how you walk, not as unwise, but as wise, making the best use of the time, because the days are evil. Therefore, do not be foolish, but understand what the will of the Lord is. And do not get drunk with wine, for that is debauchery, but be filled with the Spirit, addressing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody to the Lord with your heart, giving thanks always for everything to God the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. Now, in these 21 verses, we're going to see three things about living out our Christian lives. The first thing that we're going to see is this, that we are to imitate his love. We are to imitate his love. We see that in the first six 
verses here in chapter 5. I mean, he begins, and Paul says, therefore, be imitators of God. That word imitate means, it could also be translated mimic. He is inviting us to act in ways that are consistent with God's character. As we have seen the way God relates with us, we should imitate or mimic that behavior as we relate to one another. And we do that, it says, because we are his beloved children. Because of our close connection to our heavenly father, uh, we imitate him. We, we know this as parents, right? How many of you, have, as you are children, you see your kids do certain things and you wonder, where did they learn that? And then you think, oh yeah, they learned it from me. They're just imitating or mimicking things they've seen me do. They're responding the way I respond. In the same way, Paul says, because of our close connection to our Heavenly Father, we should have a life that looks like our Heavenly Father. We should have a life that imitates or mimics Him. Now, what is it that we are to imitate or mimic about God? Well, verse 2 tells us that in part at least, one characteristic of God that we are to imitate in our lives is the fact that he is loving. It says, and walk in love. Now, it should not surprise us that this would be at the top of the list because love is actually at the very center of the nature of who God is. Remember over in 1 John chapter 4 and verse 8, it says this, as anyone who does not love does not know God because God is what? God is love. We're, we're called to imitate or to mimic the love of God. Why? Because that's who he is. It's a part of his character. And as his children, we should relate to one another in ways that are consistent with our loving God. Now, when we think about the fact that God is love, you know, what, what does it mean to love? And what does it mean to love as God loves? That's a good question because we live in a world that's got many different definitions of love. I mean, just turn on the radio. Every song is talking about love, and they've all got a little different definition, right? It's a feeling. It's, a, it's an experience. It's something you fall into. It's something you could fall out of. We see it in, in movies and in, and in television shows. It's, it's something that you do or experience. Um, you go and, and look at cards at Hallmark, and they'll tell you what love is. Um, what, what is love? Well, Paul doesn't say that we're just to be loving in some kind of generic sense. He says we're supposed to be loving in a way that imitates or mimics the love of our Heavenly Father. And that kind of a love is described in chapter, or in, in verse 2, as how Jesus related to us. It says, and walk in love. What kind of love? The love that is as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us. It's a self sacrificing kind of a love. What is it that we're to, to imitate or to mimic? We're to imitate or to mimic our God and that we're to put others' wants, needs, and desires above our own. Apart from what God has done, that is something totally foreign to us. Apart from what God can work within us, it's something that is simply impossible for us to do on a consistent basis. But because we are his beloved children, because we have been transformed in Christ, we are called to imitate our Heavenly Father by loving those around us, by putting their interests above our own. We are to serve them. Now, 
if that is what love really looks like, then there will be a number of things that we might think of that, that would be counterfeits to that love. There would be some things that our world would say, this is what love is, and, and that we might be tempted to, to walk in a, in, in a path that would follow the world, that would imitate the world's, really the world's lust instead of God's love. And that's why Paul immediately moves on in verse 3 to talk about what the love of God isn't. And he says the love of God is not sexual immorality. See, the world wants us to associate love with sex. The, the world wants us to, to think that sex in any form, any fashion, is, is making love. And that the pursuit of that feeling is something worthy of our time, worthy of our interest, something that is not to harm us but is for our, our pleasure. And certainly, sex is something that God has given to his people. It's a, a gift that God gave, but when God gave this gift of sex, he gave it to a husband and a wife to be enjoyed within marriage and, and only in that area. And, and yet, our world wants us to mimic its lust by taking this gift of sex and, and utilizing it and using it in all of these different venues. Paul says in verse 3, he says, sexual immorality and impurity and covetousness must not even be named among you as is proper among the saints. He says, don't let the world's lust be what you follow. Sexual immorality is the tra translation of the Greek word porneo. It's a, it's a word that means any kind of sex outside of marriage. It would include things like pornography. It would include things like um, premarital sex. It would include things like uh, extramarital sex or, or an affair. It would include homosexual activity. Those things are all in, encompassed in that word porneo. And Paul says, don't take this, this capacity that God has created within you and he's created within me to love and don't exchange it for a counterfeit that is to pursue a feeling. See, when, when you go and in, in, participate in sexual immorality, you do not mimic the love of God because the love of God says, I'm here to serve you. But what does sexual immorality ultimately do? It says, you're here to serve me. Your body is for my entertainment. And I want to use you for me. That's what sexual immorality does. And, and Paul says, don't make that exchange. Don't view people in that kind of a way. Mimic the love of God, not the lust of of the world. And he goes on and says, not just that those activities wouldn't, would be something that you would do, he says, but, but stop even joking about it. What 5.4 says, he says, let there be no filthiness, nor foolish talk, nor crude joking, which are out of place. All of those phrases that he uses there are, are things that talk about using sex as a punchline of a joke double entendre, those kinds of things. Paul says, don't, don't go there. God has created sex and he's given it as a gift for you to be thankful for in its proper context. Stop using it as a punchline of a joke. Stop using it as, as an opportunity to use others for your own satisfaction. Keep it in its bounds where God has given and placed it. Warren Wearsby, in reflecting on 
Ephesians 5, 4 says this. He says, two indicators of a person's character are what makes him laugh and what makes him weep. The saint of God sees nothing humorous in obscene language or jests. Is that convicting to you? Um, it is to me. You see, God takes seriously that we would imitate his love and not the world's lust. He goes on and, and, and continues in, in verse five, and he says, for, for you may be sure of this, that everyone who is sexually immoral or impure or who is covetous, that is an idolater, has no inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God. Now, is, is Paul saying there that anybody who has ever committed one of these sins has no place in God's family? That's, that's not what he's saying. The, the body of Christ is made up of forgiven sinners. If the body of Christ is made up only of those who have never sinned, then it would be empty. But Jesus came to seek and to save the lost, right? So there is certainly forgiveness there. But I think what Paul is saying in, in verse five is something that we saw back in chapter four, and it's that there's an inconsistency for those who have received this incredible inheritance in Christ to spend our time permitting and allowing and reveling in sexual sin. It's just not fitting for the Christian to live that way. Now, there are those that are going to want to tell you that it's not that big of a deal. Go what verse 6 says. It says, let no one deceive you with empty words, for because of these things the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience. What Paul is saying is there were those in Ephesus that were walking around that were trying to convince everybody that this wasn't that big a deal. I mean, sexual sin was a real temptation, a real problem for the people of Ephesus. Sexual sin is a real problem for the people of Norman, Oklahoma. The temptation that is out there is real and it's significant. And just as in Ephesus there is today also this, this, this reality where there are those, sometimes there are people outside the church who want to tell you that sexual sin is not that big a deal. Your neighbor, your coworker, somebody in the locker room, they want to share jokes with you that cross a line. They want you to watch things that, that you shouldn't see. They encourage relationships that are inappropriate. They want to say it's not that big a deal. Sometimes that pressure comes from those outside the church. Sometimes it comes from those inside the church. You know, sometimes accountability turns into, you know what? Yeah, we all struggle with that one. Ha, ha, ha. And we begin to take lightly how serious this sin is. Sometimes there are those inside the church that want to make us think that it's not that big a deal. But Paul says it's a big deal. And God says it's a big deal, that sexual immorality would not even be named among us, that we would be serious to, to walk with God and have this, us imitate his love and not the world's lust. Now, what do we do with that? If we were to imitate his love and, and we are to, to not mimic the world's lust, what are some things that we could do? Well, the first thing I think that we could do is this. Don't, don't minimize it. Don't minimize it. Don't minimize this sin in your life. If you are tempted this way, you, pornography is something that you're dabbling in right now. Don't minimize it and say, ah, oh, it's not that big a deal. 
God says it's a big deal. He says, let it not even be named among you. Don't minimize it. If, if they're, you're, you're dating somebody right now and, and you're going too far in that relationship physically, don't minimize it. Don't say, well, we really love each other, we're really committed to one another. Don't, don't mimic the world's lust. Instead, imitate the love of God. Don't minimize it. it, it if if you're, you're struggling with whatever temptation in the sexual world, stop minimizing it. Call it what it is. Call it sin. And as you call it sin, then begin to build some inertia in your, your, your peer groups, those that, that you run with. Begin to let them know about what you think is appropriate and inappropriate, that they could help you in this area. I have a friend that several years ago sent an email to a number of guys and said, hey, stop sending me this kind of stuff. It's not funny to me anymore, and I don't need to have it as a part of my life. Maybe you need to send an email like that that would help create some inertia in your, in your peer groups that would say this is, this is not appropriate to dabble in this kind of sin. Don't minimize it. Build some inertia around it. And then lastly, stop viewing others as existing to make you satisfied. Instead, view others around you as opportunities for you to serve them in Christ because we are to imitate the love of God, not mimic the lust of the world. You see, we, we catch that by looking at the person of Christ. Second thing, live his light. Live his light. We see this from verses seven to 16. He says, therefore, do not become partners with them, for at one time you were darkness, but now you are light. We're gonna move swiftly through this section, but I think it's important to, if you don't remember anything else about this section, just, just know this. How much of a contrast is there between light and darkness? As big a contrast as you can have, right? I mean, if we were to turn off every light in this room right now, um, it would be really dark, wouldn't it? We'd take off the projectors and little white boxes and, and everything. It was completely dark in here. You know, take the little light bulbs out of the exit signs, it would be dark in here. And then you were to take your cell phone out and turn on the screen, it would, be, it would, it would feel like that screen is really bright. Why would the screen look so bright? Because it's existing in a world of darkness. That contrast would make it easily seen. And what Paul is saying is that we live out our lives in a dark world, but we are called to live out this life in a dark world representing the light of Christ. Why? Because God is light. Again, we are to, to, mimic, or to, to mimic or to, to imitate, to follow part of the character of who God is. First John chapter 1, verse 5 says it this way. It says, this is the message that we have heard from him and proclaimed to you that God is light and in him is no darkness at all. So as the people of God, as the children of light, as we live out our lives on this planet, there should be a marked difference between the life that we live and the life that is lived by those around us. That's ultimately what he's saying, that there's a difference for us. And what does it mean to, to, to reflect on God as a God of light? Really, there, there's two streams in the Bible when it talks about light and God. 
Uh, one stream is, is the image of truth. So when we talk about God being light, it's, it's a God of truth. It, it can shine in different situations and help us to understand right from wrong. That's part of what it means that God is light. But beyond that, it also talks about truth, but it also talks about holiness, that the light of God is something that speaks of his holiness, darkness, sin, light, holiness. And so when he says in chapter 5, verse 8, that we are to walk or to live out our lives as children of light, it's that we would live out our lives marked with truth and holiness, that those would be things that would characterize our existence. There would be things that we would live out. And, and it's really talking about a life of obedience in following God, a life that has fruit. Verse 9, the fruit of, of light is found in all that is good and right and true. It says a life that is spent discerning and understanding what is pleasing to God. It's a life of obedience. That's what God is calling us to do when he calls us to live out light, to, to imitate his light, to, to live it out, is to live a life of obedience to him. And as we live that life out, it will show us great contrast to everything around us. Verse 11, he says, take no part in the unfruitful works of darkness. In other words, as you obey God, your life's going to look different from those around you. He says, take no part in the unfruitful works of darkness, but instead expose them. When we live out a life that is obedient to God, it's going to expose sin around us whether we say anything or not. Take a group of dishonest people. Everybody in the room is lying. You got one person that speaks the truth. Over time, that's just found out and known, right? You got in a family, you've got the one truth teller. It's just known. In a, in a work group that you have, you have the one honest salesperson, you know that. There's a contrast that is seen. When we live out a life of obedience to God, when we follow him, whether we outline and teach things, there are things that others around us are just going to catch too. They're going to see this contrast. They're going to see this difference. A life of obedience will expose certain things. That's why we don't even have to talk about it, it says in verse 12. It's shameful to even talk about some of this stuff. We don't even have to talk about it as much as when we live out a life that is different, those around us will see and understand that we follow a God of light and not a God of darkness. Think about different realms of your life, different avenues and places where you live. What would it look like to obey God fully in that area and how might those around you experience that? in your financial world, your financial life. Be sold out to Christ to follow him completely in the area of your finances. Uh, those around you would, would see that and understand that as difference. There are, are things that I have learned in life about generosity simply by having some friends that have demonstrated to me what a generous heart before God looks like. And you know what? It was, it was no book that I read. It was just seeing a life of generosity lived out before me. Your financial life can be that light that, that, that shines in that way. How you handle adversity can be the same way. What does it look like to trust God when the world is caving in? I, that's not something you just get by reading a book. That's something you get by seeing and observing the life of somebody you know and love go through adversity and difficulty and seeing what it looks like to trust God. 
in the midst of that. See, living out his life will have our lives be at contrast with the world around us. We're to imitate his love. We're to live his light. The third thing we're gonna see, though, is that we do all of this under his control. Under his control. Verses 17 through 21. He says, don't be foolish, but understand what the will of the Lord is. Well, what is the will of the Lord? Well, the will of the Lord is not to get drunk with wine, for that is debauchery. Now, what's he talking about? Why is he going to wine here? Well, it's a, it's a sinless, pastor, and we have to get to drinking sometime. Well, maybe, maybe that's what you're thinking. But why, why, does he, why does he bring this up here? Why does he bring up drinking here? Well, I, I think it's because he's getting ready to talk about controlling influences in our life. And, you know, alcohol is something, and I really, I think this is erroneous. I think sometimes people think that alcohol controls us. In other words, if you drink a lot of alcohol, you do certain things, you say, well, that's just the beer talking. That's just uh, the alcohol uh, doing those things. You know what? That's not true. You know what the beer or the alcohol did? It removed your inhibition so that your base level fleshly desires are what are controlling you. You're, You're tearing down and not building up with your words because the filter is removed. You're you're doing things that are inappropriate that you wouldn't do in your right mind because you're just being controlled by your base level desires. Paul says, hey, don't be controlled by your base level desires. Don't consume something that will remove your inhibition so that all you're doing is being controlled by your flesh. Instead, he says this. He says, be filled with the Spirit. Now, what does it mean to be filled with the Spirit? There's a couple of different ways in which that word, you know, filled is used. We might think of filled as something that you, you pour into an empty vessel to make it full. Like I might say, I, if, my, if my car is out of gas, that it is filled up with gas so that it can be driven around the block. That's one way we use the term. Another way we use the term is not necessarily to fill something up, but to be so controlled by something. We might say it this way, I'm, you know, I'm so full of joy that I, I can't help but just kind of dance. You know, um, we might say, I'm full of joy, therefore I dance. I, I couldn't control my emotions. They just spilled over on the outside because I was so controlled by joy or I was so full of anger that I slammed my book down on the table. We use Phil in that sense as a controlling agent. Some would, would, would have you to believe that, that what we need to do is we, when, when it talks about being filled with the Spirit, that we need to pray and ask God to fill us up with His Spirit so that we could do what He's called us to do. But here's the reality. We saw back in chapter 1 that if you're a believer in Christ, guess where the Spirit is? It's already inside you. You don't need to get full of the Spirit in the sense of having more Spirit added to you. It's already there. So when Paul says to be filled with the Spirit, what he's saying is that we're to be controlled by the Spirit of God. That instead of being controlled by our base level desires, we're to be controlled by the Spirit of God. What does it look like when somebody is controlled by the Spirit of God? Think about that for a moment. You know, one level, when you think of being controlled by the Spirit of God, some people might think, well, that probably looks like... um, you know, raising your hands in worship. You're controlled by the Spirit of God. And you know what? God could 
work within your heart to raise your hands in worship, but you know, that's kind of things we think about. We think of things that might take place in this room or in a worship service, so raising hands. And in different contexts, in different places, some might, might teach you or tell you that to be full of the Spirit means that you might speak in a tongue that you never learned or utter some kind of prophetic utterance um, before others. But you know what? That, that kind of spectacular phenomena is not what Paul says in Ephesians 5. When Paul says in Ephesians 5 is that when we are full of the Spirit, that we are controlled by the Spirit and it will exhibit actions and behaviors that are just going to be obedient to what God has called us to do. I want to get back to that in a second, but I want to first share a quote from John Stott. This is what he says as he reflects on this. He says, too much so-called holiness teaching emphasizes a personal relationship to Jesus Christ without any attempt to indicate its consequences in terms of relationships with the people we live and work with. In contrast to such holiness in a vacuum which magnifies experiences and minimizes ethics, the apostles spelled out Christian duty in the concrete situations of everyday life and work. What does it look like to be filled with the Spirit of God according to Ephesians 5? Well, just keep reading. What does he say? He says, when we're full of the Spirit, we're going to address one another with psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody in our heart to the Lord, giving thanks always for everything to God the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. One of the things that happens when we're full of the Spirit is that we're going to be rightly related to God. He's going to be at the top. We're going to be lifting Him up. We're going to be praising Him with our lives. That's what happens when we're controlled by the Spirit of God. We'll obey Him by worshiping Him. But he goes on. He doesn't just say that. He says, if you are controlled by the Spirit of God, not only will you give thanks for everything, but also, he says, you will submit to one another out of reverence for In other words, when the Spirit is controlling our lives, we're going to be so obedient to God that we will be loving and serving one another. And here's the beautiful thing about that, guys. If the Spirit's controlling influence only led to certain kinds of behavior that were a part of worship services, that means that we would only have access to the Spirit of God once a week. Some of you, twice a month more just Christmas and Easter. No, I'm just kidding. Um, but you would only have access a few times, right? But here's the thing. If the Spirit of God is controlling us in our relationships with one another, what does that mean? It means that it can impact the way husbands love wives, the way wives love husbands. That's what he's getting ready to say in 522 through 33. It can impact the way parents love children, the way children love parents, the beginning of chapter six. It can impact the way your work relationships play out, chapter six. See, the spirit controlling us is about obedience in our life and God filling the sail that we might live a life of obedience to him. See, there are things in life that are caught and there are things in life that are taught. Thankfully, we can catch a few things by looking at the person of Jesus Christ. Let me pray, and after we pray, I want us to close by singing a song. Father, I just thank you so much that you have given us your word, that you have instructed us um, with, with these great truths. But Father, not just that you've given us truth that you've taught at us, but 
You've given us the example of Jesus. We might catch from him what it means to love others. And Father, thank you that you've given us the opportunity and the privilege to love as you loved, to lay down our lives before you, um, to be filled with your spirit, to be controlled by your spirit, to, to live a life that is pleasing and honoring to you. Father, what a, what a privilege and what an honor. And Father, I pray that us collectively as a people today, that we would, would lay down our lives, we would give you our hearts, and we would surrender all person of Jesus Christ.